Well, I'm delighted to be back with you today. It's been about four months since I had the privilege of worshiping with you, and I thank God and His providence for the opportunity to do so today. I would direct your attention to the 22nd chapter of the book of First Kings. You will recall, if you were here throughout the year last year, that we've looked at several texts in this section of First Kings, and we have found ourselves basically tracking the downfall of Ahab. Uh, this has been generally shown in wider descriptive history, such as, for example, verses 15 through 17 of chapter 19, where as the prophetic mantle is being handed off from Elijah to Elisha, we're told about some others who will assume particular positions politically that will be key in God's plan in judging Ahab. And then we move to the more specific, even though I didn't preach on chapter 21, you will note as you study it that as Ahab attains, appropriates for himself Naboth's vineyard, toward the end of the chapter there is a confession there that though we know, given what we've seen about Ahab, that it's more regret than true repentance. Nonetheless, Elijah the prophet is pleased to say that your household won't fall until after you're gone. What a picture that is of the desire of God, even as he maintains his justice, the great pleasure he takes in showing mercy to those who will even cry out in any way and on any level feign repentance. I often struggle with that. I don't know about you, but if, as you survey your besetting sins, you wonder how sorry is sorry. Where's the point where my repentance is true Repentance. But nonetheless, we see that God must be faithful to his covenant character and his obligations to bring justice upon those who refuse to embrace his word, to follow his commands, and to trust in his promises. But I want to suggest to you as we come to this particular passage before us today that even in all of this, our view to the way in which God orders events in such a way as they do not fail to demonstrate how it is that he is a just God, yet he most certainly, per his covenant faithfulness, is pleased to keep his salvation ever before sinners, and as he is pleased, granting life to them. As we dive into First Kings 22, 1 through 23, we might hang over it as we seek to examine the particulars, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, when he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've entitled today's message, even though we're going non-technical and we don't have it on the screen, toward the gospel, the inescapability of judgment, but by the perfect king who is the word of God. Natural man ignores and rejects the contents of God's word, but he will never evade the judgment of God's word. And just the same, the one who hears the word of God and opens his heart to him will always 
live. That's the hope that we are stretching ourselves to see as we peer intently into these 23 verses. Let's hear them now, remembering that this is God's holy and inerrant word. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold the words of the prophet with one accord, are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the, king of the, the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out. And will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. 
the Lord has declared disaster for you. This is the Word of God. May He write its truths this day irremovably upon our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed to know and to receive Your Word, Your record concerning who You are, who we are, and how it is that we can be reconciled to You. We ask that Your Spirit would move upon the one who preaches, that my words would be your words, and that you would make of each of us this day, as you speak to us by your word and spirit, not merely passive hearers, but effectual doers. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, and for his sake, amen. My late friend, the ruling elder John Reynolds, who went to be with the Lord about two and a half years ago now, I recall was giving an exhortation in a study of men one time on the 103rd Psalm. And you're quite familiar with that Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, the second verse says. And John had quite a lengthy life and had been a churchman since his conversion in his early 20s, and he had seen a lot. He'd seen the struggles of churches and the hard times and sacrifices that those in pastoral ministry must make. And I remember some point a humorous statement he made as he emphasized the way in which God is good to his people. The pay won't be good in ministry, he said, but the benefits will always be out of this world. Often that's the case. We tend to look at the temporal, what's going wrong, what isn't going the way we would like it to, forgetting that there is in store for us innumerable benefits that God is loading us with daily as He assures us of His love in Christ and gives us peace in Him, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit and the capacity by His grace to persevere to the end. We have to look beyond that which bothers us and sobers us, even if it is true, to see what will comfort us and will equip us for every good work to which the faithful Lord, as He saves men, calls them. You get that sense as you approach 1 Kings 22, 1 through 23. These things are are difficult things to hear, but I would suggest to you that they are rife with signs of God's favor and how it is that he desires to set before men continually the message of his longing and his capacity and his perfect willingness to save those who do not deserve it. We've seen this before. We're going to the third of three battles that will spell the end of Ahab. Uh, This victory will not be like the other two. This battle, rather, will not consist in victories like the other two over the Syrians in previous chapters. But as we're working toward God's specific end, we will mark ways in which he continues to show that he loves sinners and keeps his truth ever before them. The renunciation of the Word of God by one will never thwart the accomplishment of God's will for all whom He has set His redemptive affections upon. 
Those who disregard the word's content will never evade the word's judgment. But that same God is faithful and says to men in the person of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who supersedes all Old Testament monarchs, he says to them in him that I am pleased if you embrace my word, the Lord Jesus Christ, I will assign to you everlasting life. Even as God's word emerges in judgment, it can also avail in all of its truth in justification. Jesus, as he says, to borrow his words in John 5, 24, if we hear his word and believe in him who has sent him, we have eternal life and we pass, come not into judgment, but pass from death to life. What are the markings here? What, is the, what are the gems that we can dig out that consist of passing from death to life applicably? And there are three things that I wish for us to note. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, we primarily come upon the theme of the circumstantial forthrightness of God's Word that is gracious. We have a set of circumstances here, conditions, where there is nothing that is equivocated. Everything is crystal clear in terms of God's Word as it comes to all of the players on the scene here. But what in that is gracious, is kind? Well, the Word of God itself can never be deceptive. It can never mislead. It's always truthful. It's always forthright. And even when judgment is the message, one begins to see something of the holiness of God and what He requires. And as His Spirit moves, begin to work in the direction of what one must lay hold of and believe to escape such judgment. Well, there's politics here. There's some formalities that are being conducted here as we look at this passage. It has been, as the text notes in the beginning in verse 1, three years of peace between Syria and Israel. Jehoshaphat has been reigning in the south for approximately that period of time. Now, you know this one, Jehoshaphat. He ranked as one of the best kings in the history of all of the kings of Judah. He was actually an in-law of Ahab's. One of his sons had married one of Ahab's daughters. So they have that connection. And one gets the sense that on first it's kind of a state visit or something formal to some degree to which Jehoshaphat appears to be willing to go along with. But there's more than that. There emerges a desire on the part of Ahab, the foolish and wicked king, to get for himself what he would desire as God's will for him in his commitment to himself, and the pushback that comes from Jehoshaphat. He first says to him, and this is the formality, something sort of Ruth-like, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So there's a sense in which he's saying at first, ostensibly, I'm with you, O father-in-law of my son. But, there's a but, we must inquire first for the word of the Lord. And what Ahab does is gather those who are on the payroll, those prophets, the yes-men prophets, who have probably received their prophetic certificates online. They're not really the real deal. They come yet again, 
And Jehoshaphat knows about them. And he asks in verse 7, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? He's the real deal. In fact, that's what his name means, Micaiah, who is like Jehovah. He's not interested in being vacuumed up into Ahab's plans to seek out a stamp of approval on what he wills. But he's a true prophet. He's one called of God, fearing God, and wanting to know what the Word of God really is. And in verse 8, note what Ahab's response is. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlam, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. Not only is there a verse here that's chock full of doctrine, But there's all manner of apologetic information as well that speaks to both who God is and who man is and is quite effective in the defense of the faith itself. This is something we could cite if we were ever challenged on on what we believe. And I suggest to you that what's happening here is that Ahab, even the one who disregards and has no concern for what the true word of God is, Even in the forthrightness of the statements that come his way, we see God granting to mankind grace. Uh, He doesn't want to obey the truth, but for some reason wants to go on record with it for his own purposes. So to that extent, he says, there is but one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. He's not really troubled about Micaiah coming in. He'd like him on the scene, but he doesn't want him to say really what the Lord would say, but rather what he would want to hear. And I love that statement, but I hate him. Because unbeknownst even to himself, what is Ahab doing? He's turning over and showing the hand of natural man. God is is breaking through all of the obstinance and the sinfulness and commitment to unrighteousness of the king of Israel. And he's presenting both truth through Micaiah, as well as using him to excavate the real problem. Not that man can't know that there is God, not that man can't know that God is good, but that he is fundamentally in his constituent nature opposed to God. It's what Greg Bonson said to Gordon Stein in that famous 1984 UC Irvine debate where he stops and he says to the head of the American Association of Atheists, Dr. Gordon Stein, Greg Bonson says, your problem, Dr. Stein, is not that you don't believe there is a God, but you know there is a God And you hate him. And that's what we have here. Emerging through all of the details of this Old Testament narrative. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He's calling what is good, evil. Isn't it any wonder then that God, who is gracious, would want to set apart those who speak lies from those who will emerge, even if they're singularly by themselves in specific circumstances, to speak the truth. 
Will we be thankful for that, that whatever the circumstantial forthrightness of God's word, that there is grace to be heard and experienced? Being a fan of George Whitfield, I recalled recently how he contended against the false prophets of his day. He gave a sermon near Harvard College at Suffield and later wrote of the occasion. This is in the 18th century. Meeting with a minister who said it was not absolutely necessary for a gospel minister that he should be converted. I insisted much in my discourse upon the doctrine of the new birth and also the necessity of a minister being converted before he could preach Christ aright. Many ministers were present, and I did not spare them. Most of them thanked me for my plain dealing. One of them, however, was offended, and so would more of his stamp were I to stay longer in New England. Unconverted ministers are the bane of the Christian church. And days later at Yale, he declared, I spoke very closely to the students and shooed off the dreadful ill consequences of an unconverted ministry. Oh, that God may quicken ministers. Oh, that the Lord may make them a flaming fire. That's what Ahab, God, through Ahab, at this juncture, providentially provides. May it be said of us that we too will contend for truth as those who have been changed, as those of whom it could be said, yet we may be inquired of and found in the truth. May we be God's instruments, and may we go forth, and may those whom God seeks to change by His Spirit be, as Bishop J.C. Ryle has said, vexed that we would not keep still and let the devil alone. You see, there's the grace of God coming even through the wicked. Nothing stops the promotion and with great clarity of the reality that He does love sinners and provides a way for them to be reconciled to Him. Let us look at judgment and may we be sobered May we be caused to tremble before our God, but may we also remember what D.L. Moody said is true. God is the God of all grace. He desires to deal in grace. He wants to deal with the unmerited mercy, undeserved favor, unmerited love. And if God doesn't love man until he is worthy of his love, he won't have very much time for loving him. This is not a God who waits upon anyone. But even in the midst of the administration of his just judgment, he bursts through and is kind to show you who he is and that yours and my real problem, if left to our own devices, is that we hate him and we must be made to love him. Well, Secondly, in verses 9 through 14, we see principally the final authority of God's word that is unalterable. As we move out of verse 8 and Jehoshaphat's righteous rebuke of Ahab, let not the king say so. You shouldn't say things like that about the Lord and his spokesman. Those things should not proceed from our mouths we see him begin to put into action that which 
Ahab has said would be his desire, even if for other reasons, and he calls for the quick presentation of Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now, it's interesting to note here in verses 10 through 13, particularly verses 10 through 12, the formal goings on here and all the pomp and circumstance, in a sense, uh, preview in a parallel way something of a greater set of circumstances that we'll get to in a moment that are symbolic in verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 23 are almost apocalyptic language. It sounds like you're reading Daniel 7 or Revelation 4. There's this portrayal of God that is high, and and our, our writer is going through and is specifying how it is that the will of God is going to come to pass per Ahab because of his sin. But we get a glimpse of that in terms of the specifics of the occasion. You'll notice there how we read that it is they were sitting on their thrones, the two kings, arrayed in their robes, verse 10, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. Uh, Now, we can't miss what's, what's really happening there. The threshing floor celebrations in this time consisted of kings or those in authority where there was a literal winnowing during the harvest time that wheat grain was tossed up into the air and the wheat was separated from the chaff and this was something that was either celebrative and or some type of pronouncement of judgment if you remember a little bit later on in jeremiah 19 there's very harsh judgment that comes With regard to Tophet, the people are gathered there outside of the gate of Potsherd. And if you study that, what you see is that the valley of the son of Hinnom will become the valley of slaughter. God, to put it anthropomorphically, had had enough. And he's going to judge the idolatry that's there. Where were they? Right outside the gate, right on the threshing floor. This is what God does. There is threshing floor winnowing. And I'll suggest to you that, as we'll see in a moment, what 19 through 22, what those verses exemplify is the final winnowing, that even as they are gathered at the gate of Samaria, and it was always at a city or a region just outside the gate, the threshing floor, that on that day at the New Jerusalem's gate, just outside of Zion, there's going to be the final winnowing where all of the grain of the fallen created order is tossed into the air, And the wheat and the tares are separated. So we we shouldn't miss that symbolism there. But those things of which we read that are symbolized in the final five verses of this passage, they're pointed to in a plethora of ways those realities are throughout the Scripture. And some consist of those who are wicked and also those who are righteous. Some do a little bit better of pronouncing the power of God in their intent as a winnowing is taking place. You'll recall in Deuteronomy 33, there Moses blessed the tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom and articulated their strength as being like horns upon a wild oxen. He's speaking there of the Lord. Moses' emphasis is upon Yahweh's strength to deliver His people, whom He had named as strong. Now Zedekiah here, in verse 11, is attempting to use similar language, but of Ahab's army, not of Israel's God. 
Notice the words. Thus the Lord says in verse 11, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. How clear was it in our examination of the two previous battles, how crystal clear it was that the power to defeat and the victory was in God Himself. So Moses is right, and Ahab and company, they're they're wrong. But nonetheless, even those who spoke in the name of the Lord, verse 11, those who prophesied with a commitment to the keeping of the promises of God, even those who are described by our writer as those who saw themselves as filled with the Spirit, in verse 24, beyond our passage, as these work, they are trumped by the true prophet of God and his words, You'll notice, again, glancing back up to verse 8, how he says, For he never prophesies. For he never must be contrasted to the way in which the personal assistant of the king en route back with Micaiah says in verse 13, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the one one of them, and speak favorably. For he never, verse 8, therefore let your word be as our king desires. All of these goings on, and verse 14 smacks you in the face, but Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. There will be none other. The buck will stop there. The only rule of faith and of practice for anyone will be what God says. That, that I will speak. There's a final authority in these words that render the word of God as unalterable. And again, what a blessing pushing through all of the mire of sin and of iniquity comes axiomatic truth. That's a blessing. The wicked will be cursed, but those whom God is pleased to bless, they're prepared in observation of that cursing to fly to Him, to trust in Him. Oh, what a blessing it is to have things told as they are. Tell it like it is. I was just having a conversation with my friend, the Reverend James Spurgeon, in Woodbridge, Virginia, a retired minister. You didn't know we had a Spurgeon in the PCA. Jim is now up in years, and I was talking with him and how, seeing how he and his wife are doing, and we got off onto the subject of ministry and preaching. He said, you know, in all the years of ministry, What I've wanted to see in preachers are those who will simply with aplomb and with poise look people in the eye and tell them, Thus saith the Lord. None of the shenanigans of the day, none of those things that we think will somehow allure men who are quasi-interested in truth, as was Ahab, but just shoot straight with us that there's great blessing to have someone do so. To have one who doesn't determine, but delivers. One who does not construct, but conveys the Word of God. 
the truth of God, to be his messenger and to speak to him and to challenge and to call and to remind of the responsibility of men before him. I was told a story once of a woman whose husband had died and she'd also lost her 10-year-old son to cystic fibrosis. She met a man with another son about the age of hers and fell in love with him, but he was an atheist. And her friends, as we often do, you know, good friends, uh, you shouldn't marry that person. But she wanted to. She was set upon it. And someone brought to her one day a letter that was written by her late 10-year-old son to be opened by her only in the event of her remarriage. And that boy who was dying had said this, Mother, if you marry, I know it's because you found a man who will join you in the grand endeavor of representing God. And she was shot through, and she was convicted of the error that she was about to make, and she didn't do it. But just prior to that, one of her good friends had said to her, Audrey, the voice of God will be heard. Whether you will listen is another matter. And this section of 1 Kings 22 poses that very same statement to us. Jesus must open, give ears to hear, to those whom he will by his Spirit regenerate. But the voice of the Lord will be heard in a physical sense. When the voice, when sound waves leave the mouths of myself and others who are proclaimers of the gospel, all those who hear, those sound waves will make their way up the ear canals to the cochlear of the hearers. The responsibility lies with them and they must be challenged at the end of the day. Will you listen? Will you be among those who have ears to hear? What's the point of that? So that we might not sin against our God, that we might not be averse to His ways and at enmity with Him all the way to the end and our own calamity or disaster, but that we might be united to Him and sanctified in the truth of His Word, not living in opposition, but living in sync with Him. I'm so thankful that when I was a boy in Florida, my parents put me in a Christian school. And at the beginning of the day, it was, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. And I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The truth is before men. The question is, what will we do with it? But finally, in verses 15 through 23, the third point is the provisional disregard for God's word that is condemning. I use the term provisional there because we too so often operate that way. Our culture is just shot through with ways in which we erect external constructs that deny the essence of reality. It's in the church. It's in the government. It's everywhere. It's life in 2022. And Ahab is a provisional one. That is to say, he has in mind for himself something that he 
longs to have brought about. And those very things will accrue ultimately to his condemnation or his disaster, as verse 23 puts it. As we begin to walk through the final nine verses, beginning at verse 15, notice how Micaiah's response is something that consists really of sarcasm. Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, that is, King Ahab, Go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, we have this one account here. We only hear of Micaiah in one other place. The chronicler in Second Chronicles 18 mentions him historically. But this reads as though there is a history here, does it not, of them having gone toe-to-toe, Micaiah bringing out, yea, verily, the very word of God, and Ahab not liking it. Why would he be flip here? Because he knows things aren't going to change. We've done this dance before. So I might as well just say this because it's not going to be of any consequence anyway. It reminds me of a friend of mine who said something in uh, Pentateuch class at RTS with Dr. Richard Pratt. Dr. Pratt would have us answer test questions with very, very long answers, like essays. And he had a lot of them to read. And one of my uh, classmates was convinced he wasn't really reading them all. And so right in the midst of one of his lengthy answers about some complicated aspect of the relationship uh, between Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 and everything that's going on there. He's writing along, and then he says, Richard, if you're reading this, I'll buy you a pizza. He wasn't being disrespectful, by the way. If you've ever met Dr. Pratt, the first thing he tells you is, call me Richard. But he writes, Richard, if you're really reading all of this, I will buy you a pizza. And then he keeps going. Now, I, I don't know what happened, but that's sort of the idea here. He's so convinced that what he says isn't going to matter that I'll just say anything because it'll probably be ignored anyway. And then verse 16 is striking. The king says to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of of the Lord. Now, obviously, again, from the wider context, we know that the truth in the name of the Lord to Ahab is something other than the actual truth in the name of the Lord. But, but he's that contentious for what he really wants. Uh, how many times shall I make you swear? The Hebrew literally reads, how long am I going to have to keep on putting you on oath to get you to bring about something of what will suit me? And then in verse 17, he tells him some specific things. Israel is seen as scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And what's the response in verse 18 as this truth comes forth? Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Same response, in essence. And then we have the word packaged coming to us via Micaiah that will bring forth the ultimate result that God has for Ahab. And look at these words. Again, they're, they're almost apocalyptic in nature, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, 
And all of the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? Who will come forth to me and do my bidding in drawing Ahab into my will for him? That he may go up specifically and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one thing and another another. You can only imagine what heavenly back and forth is like. And then in verse 21, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, that is the Lord, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. He says to Ahab, the Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt on this being some type of divine trickery and God's not being fair here and all of this. There, there is no trickery here. And we know that precisely because slight of divine hand would entail on some level withholding the truth. But this is all before Ahab, and we see that in the final statement. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. He's talking to him. There's no mystery here. And again, we are stunned at the way in which God is pleased to use even the trimmings of the evil of men under the sway of our ancient enemy, as Luther called him, and to bring about... What is righteous in his eyes? Makes me think of Paul's words in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. Paul there in his development of the man of lawlessness says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, the first Kings 22, 19 through 23 isn't a sending of delusion. I don't know what one would look like. It's a sneak preview of more to come in the Pauline scheme of the way in which our God works to honor himself in his faithfulness to justice. And if you have a provisional disregard for the way God lays things out, it will spell condemnation. But here's the great conclusion as we come to the Lord's table. The heartbeat of this entire passage is found in verse 17. I don't like what you've been saying to me, Micaiah. I'm tired of making you swear to tell me what I want to hear. What does he say? I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. The prophet here is both building upon words from the past as well as pointing to words that will be spoken by the Savior in the future. God's faithfulness is crystal clear in the way in which he makes sure 
that his people will be taken to their home and will have peace with him. What did the Lord promise to Abraham? That he and his descendants would take a land that he has designated. We know this to be the land of Canaan. Moses had finished his work. Joshua was to take over. You see the same verbiage in Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. There Moses, in shoring up the passing of the baton to Joshua, says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep who have no shepherd. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 9? In Matthew 9.36, he looks upon this same Israel, the descendants of these very people, And he says, these are sheep without a shepherd. And this is why he went through, as he says in in verse 35 of Matthew 9, the cities and villages and synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This one who speaks to his hearers in the first century, he says to them, You're scattered about. You don't have a shepherd, and I'm here. I'm your shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And my gospel is the gospel of my kingdom. I'm a perfect king. I'm a good king. I'm not an Ahab. I'm not even a Jehoshaphat. I supersede all of them. I'm superior to angels and to Moses. I'm worthy of glory beyond that Moses is due. You see what he's doing here? He presents himself ultimately in the person of his son as the one who can take them to the home that God desires for them and set them at peace with him. In context here, what Yahweh is saying for his Israel is, I see them scattered on the mountains and sheep that have no shepherd, and because they have such a sorry king, what they better do if they want to live in their homes peaceably, is to return to them now. Because if they go into battle with this guy, it's all over. But you see, in that very statement, he's, he's presenting you a prototype of the gospel. He's telling you that he is a God who desires that his people have a home, ultimately with him, and ultimately at peace with him. And Jesus is that perfect king. He is that king beyond all earthly magistrates. And he has offered himself. He's preaching the gospel, the good news of his sacrifice of himself for sinners. And he is himself their peace, Ephesians 2.14. So when you, you couple the fact that we have the peace of God in the perfect king with the fact that everything we read in the Old Covenant, all of the thus says the Lord, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, come to their fruition and emerge as the very embodiment of truth in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing when 
people speak with such a clear synonymity of Jesus and the Word and will talk and give their testimonies such that they will couch it in terms of word reception in the heart. Specifically, beautiful it is when they can say and present that truth and that reality as him being the one who leads them to a home he has prepared for them in their father's house with his peace. Walter Knight tells a story of a missionary who had asked a man somewhere in Africa years ago, have you received God's word into your heart? And the man replied, yes, I have, and my people too. Every night we meet for prayer and sing hymns. And the missionary said, that's fine, but if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And the villager replied, when I die, I will go to God's village and I will greet him And when he asks me what right I have to enter, I will tell him that his son Jesus died for me and washed me clean in his blood. And as my word, he is my peace. I don't like reading about people getting their just desserts any more than you do when I examine my own heart. But don't read 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Kings 22, 1 through 22, and fail to camp out on verse 17. We do not have a God who fails to gather in the scattered. We do have a great shepherd. We do have a master. And he's prepared a home for his own with his and our Father because he is our peace. So the question is, knowing that God's voice will be heard, will we listen? Will we passively hear? Or will, by grace through faith, we actively do as we receive the perfect King God's Word into our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, how kind You are that even as You are severe and just, You never fail to be merciful beyond what our finite minds can comprehend. And we pray that as we come to Your table that You would put us in proper mindset and perspective that we may sup with you well as you vouchsafe to us again your grace, for we ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to prepare.